You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. Why would you come to Cross Life? That's, what I, that's one of my favorite questions to ask people. Why are you here? What are you doing? People come for the first time. How'd you find out about it? Why are you here? What are you doing? Do you have nothing better to do on a Thursday night? Were you looking for a social group? Uh, did you want to hear from God's word? Why? What are you doing here? What about yourself? What are you doing here? Why are you here? I don't know why you're here. Uh, I care about why you're here. But regardless of why you're here, what I hope and pray tonight that you will get is God's word in a way that convicts, encourages, and presses you on towards Christ-likeness. Or if you don't know him in a way that, would, uh, that his law would show about sin in your life, that you would turn and follow him that you'd throw off the rags that you're looking for in life, the, the things that keep letting you down, and that you'd turn, you'd follow Christ, and you'd find true joy. That's my prayer. Let's pray that together as we get started. <clears throat> God, give us grace to worship you well tonight. We've started. We've been in prayer. Uh, and then we were in song, and we've been visiting with one another, and we've been worshiping you corporately for a while now. But now we come to the time where we open and we peer into the depths of your word and we need your help. We desire your word. Make the book live to me, O Lord. Make the book live to your people. Build us up in your word. Convict us of sin. Do your work tonight, Lord. Get glory for yourself through your word, through simple men and women tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you know, it's been said that words are just words. Words need to be backed up by actions. We see this in a variety of ways. People say things like, you don't just talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Or uh, don't just say it, do it. There's a variety of idioms for this. I think of tomorrow. What's tomorrow? It's Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's Day. Did you realize that? So let's say I was to wake up tomorrow and I was to say, I was to come home from work tomorrow, I was to say, sweetheart, I love you. And then I went and laid on the couch and took a nap. <clears throat> Do you think my words would match my actions? Of course not. Do you think if I said, baby, I'd love to serve you, I just love you so much, uh, you're so precious to me, and then I went and, uh, and did something by myself for the rest of the night, do you think that would be a good manifestation of my love towards her? No, <laughs> it would be selfish. It wouldn't be love. At least it wouldn't be true love. It would just be words. <clears throat> Excuse me. So often people come up to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they say, Tan, I really want to be a part of Cross Life. I want to serve. I want to get involved. I want to do this. I won't see them until next semester. Now, for some reason, the desire is there initially, but the actions aren't there to back it up. We could paint this in a variety of ways. I uh, have to watch it in my own life as well as I, as I demonstrate towards my wife. But what about you? Does your life retract, reflect what your mouth says? Words better be backed up by example. In fact, words without actions are just hypocritical, aren't they? When we boil it down, when we break it down, that's the truth. It's been said that if you want the world to heed, let your creed be your deed. If you want the world to heed, if you want the world to pay attention to you as a Christian, if you want them to see, if you want them to hear what you're saying, let your creed, that is what you believe, be your deed. Now, that's the case in Scripture, isn't it? 
No better place to find this reality than what we see in the pages of Scripture. Tonight we're going to explore Imago Dei, God's character, by this, by example. See, so far as I can tell, God never says this in Scripture, I love you. Never present tense says to anyone, I love you. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I would, uh, maybe I missed something. But so far as I can tell, it's never this in the pages of Scripture. I love you. But what he does say, what he does remind us of are things like this. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. How? Why? Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ doesn't just say, I love you. He dies. He gives up his life. He's crushed by the Father for us. He stands in the stead of us. And his sins, our sins, he bore on himself. That's how he says, I love you. 1 John three sixteen. the first part says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's not just word, it's action. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us love not in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, words of affirmation, words are important. But when they're not backed up by example, how much weight can we put in them? That's exactly what we find in Romans 9 through 11. That's exactly what we see in the pages of Scripture. Tonight, we're going to talk about this, two things. Two attributes of God. Are you ready? The kindness and the severity of God. And God isn't just going to say I'm kind. He's going to show you how. He's not just going to say I'm severe. He's going to show you exactly how that is. Okay? God is both kind and severe. And you, yourself, sitting in this pew tonight, wherever you are, at one day, at one point, on judgment day, you will either experience God's kindness or you will experience his severity. You either experience his goodness or his severity. And we're going to peer at both tonight. I could tell you God is good and kind, but it's better that I give you a demonstration of his goodness, of his kindness. And Paul's been doing that in Romans. He does that far better than I could ever come up with an example. So we're going to use his. But before we go to Romans 9, before we go to Romans 11, which is where we're going to spend some time, I just want you to see what Romans is about. And I can never, never do this justice in a night, but a quick review, because Romans is incredible, isn't it? As has been said, it's the closest thing we have to systematic theology. It's not systematic theology, but it's close. Paul lays out an argument. In fact, I've heard that it, uh, I think it was Stanford. Stanford used to use this, uh, or no, it was Harvard, excuse me. Harvard used to use this as a model in law. He sets up a bulletproof defense for the gospel. What's he do? He spends the first three chapters in this. The condemnation and the sinfulness of man against the backdrop of the righteousness of God. Paul belabors the point. I don't know that he belabors it. He labors into the point to show you, you are helpless. You are rotten to the core and the core is rotten, as someone has said. You are sinful to the core. And I am a wretch. Paul labors to show that. He labors in three chapters, almost all three chapters to say this. You're deprived. You're wicked. You're apart from God. You left to yourself would not choose God. You would not have him. You left to yourself are sinful. And the good news comes. In four and five, we see a bulletproof justification for faith or justification. Uh, Paul lays out this, this doctrine called justification in which you yourself as a sinful person can be right before God. How? By faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. He lays it out. Study it. 
Romans 4 and 5, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Romans 6 through 8, he transitioned into practical Christian living. You've been set free from sin. You've been set free from law and death. Live like it. Live as a Christian. Practical outworking. Sanctification. Live as a believer. Okay? In Romans 9 through 11, we see Israel's rejection, the nation of Israel, and their promised future. We see that this is a covenant-keeping God, a good God. And this should promote in us confidence. Who's Israel? You know who Israel is, but if you, uh, about maybe 70, 80 years ago, maybe you wouldn't know who Israel was. Maybe Israel wasn't an established uh, nation then. There's the Jewish people, but they didn't have a homeland. Listen, God, from the very beginning, if you're not familiar with the Bible, he chose a people. Those people happen to be the Jews. Why? Because they were beautiful people? No. Because there were a bunch of them? No. Because they were just wonderful, nice people? No. Because God chose to set his love upon them. And what do those people do? If you've read, if you've seen the plot line of the Bible, they continually rebel, they buck against God. They sin again and again in this awful reciprocal cycle and we see them rebel and God, God's gracious and he sends prophets to remind them and they rebel again and they've fallen. And by the time Messiah rolls around, they don't even see him. God blinds them, they don't even see him. Jesus comes and they reject him, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And Paul himself, a Jew, is writing this and his heart just bleeds for these Jewish people. If you read this, he just says, and in fact, in chapter 10, verse one, he says this, my desire and my, my heart's desire and my prayer, my longing for them is their salvation. But they've rejected the Messiah. They've rejected God. And in chapter 11, I want you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 11, if you're not already there. That's where we're gonna pick up. And in 1 through 10, God tells us this. He says, Israel's rejection is not total. Okay, he says this in uh, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Okay, so his rejection of them is not total. Verse 11 through 15 tell us that his rejection is not final. Look at verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Paul's saying they didn't fall eternally. They didn't fall never to get up, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to who? Gentiles. What's that mean? Who's a Gentile? The Bible, the Gentile is everyone who's not a Jew. Who's that? You and me. So what happened? The Jews fell. They were blinded. They missed the Messiah. They missed it. I had a guy come up to me and talk uh, one time. He was my coach. I asked him to come. I was, was going to be sharing the gospel. And, and uh, I, asked, I said, what do you think? And uh, he started evaluating my order skills. He said, I think you read too much. I think you could have done this a little differently. And he's right. I'm not that good of an order. I'm not that good of a speaker. But I thought, you know what I thought? You missed it. You missed it. You missed the point. Just what I, the only thing I cared about you seeing, I, I, saying, hearing, the only thing, you missed it. What did Israel do? They missed it. They missed it. And guess what? Most of them, most of them are still missing it. Why is that good news for you and for me? Because Paul says in Romans, I, it came to the Jews first and then to the Greeks, came also to the Gentiles, came to you and me. People not, not God's people by his initial choice. So in, in uh, 11 through 15, we see that their rejection is not final. It's not permanent. Their fall was for our good, and their mistake uh, uh, 
we're set about, we've been saved to make them jealous as a motivator for salvation. And then he does this, and this is where we're going to spend our time. He gives two illustrations, okay? Look at me with verse 15. For the rejection, uh, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. So two pictures here, lump of dough and branches, okay? If Abraham, the father of the Jews, was holy, Okay, traces down. They're all Abraham's physical descendants. <clears throat> but guess what? We get a chance to be God's spiritual children, Abraham's spiritual children. And so Paul gives us an incredible illustration. Follow with me, picking up in verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, not be arrogant towards the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Stop there. Do you see what's going on? Paul gives us a picture of this. He gives us a picture of two trees, okay? And they're wild olive trees. And uh, excuse me, one of them's a wild olive tree, one of them's not. Get these flowers out of the way. They're not olive trees. Two trees, one's wild, one's domestic. Now, when I was in Israel a couple years ago, I was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I saw olive trees that were really old. In fact, they would have been there around the time Christ was there. So olive trees last a really long time. And the Jews got really good at doing something. They got really good at grafting. What's grafting? Anybody know? Anybody a gardener? I was an animal science major, not a plant science major. So I had to do some studying. What is grafting? Let me show you a picture. If you don't understand this illustration, maybe this will help. Here's our natural olive tree. Okay, here's the Jews. See if I can get that in there. Here's the wild olive tree. This is you and I. Okay? Yeah, get up in there. Okay, wild olive tree. Jews are a natural olive tree. They were chosen from the beginning. They're God's chosen people. But what happened? What happened? They didn't believe. And what did God do? What did He do? He broke off branches. And branches were broken off for their unbelief. And there was a rejection of the Messiah. Okay? And branches were broken off of the natural tree. There was some, there'll always be some, there'll be a remnant. But what happened when those branches were broken off? What does that leave room for? I'll leave something, room for something real peculiar. Let me show you. That's why I'm doing this up here and not right by you. Yes, it's a graft. It's a wild olive tree. It's off doing its own thing. If you know anything about wild olive trees, they don't produce much uh, fruit by themselves, okay? Their olives are small. They don't produce hardly any oil. They're not much good. But a graft does this. 
a graft takes the root. Imagine this is still rooted in the ground. And we now have a place here. Ooh, sorry about that. At least it wasn't the knife, huh? This is called a cleft graph. And uh, I make a split right in the middle here. And I open that up a little bit. And I take this wild branch and I trim it down. Now who's the wild branch? That's you, that's a Gentile. What happens with the wild branch? Gets grafted in. It's called a cleft graft or a saddle graft. And you wrap that up, you cover that with a little bit of wax. That's going to take off. What's it going to do? That's going to bear fruit. That's the picture that God is painting for us. There's this natural tree and it's rejected. It's not bearing fruit. So what does God do? He trims it. He prunes it. And he takes the branches and he casts them off. And there's this wild olive tree, totally undeserving, left totally to itself. There's branches on it. And he takes the branches from the wild olive tree and grafts them into the native one. That's the picture Paul's giving it. Are you with me? Okay, that's the illustration. That's the picture. That's the advertisement, if you will. A lot of you watch Super Bowl advertisements, but if you just remember the advertisement and don't remember what the product is for, the advertisement fails, doesn't it? Okay, same thing with an illustration. If you just remember me hacking off wildly with a pocket knife, a bunch of branches up here, you miss it. You miss the point. What does this tell us? What does this point to? What, what is this all for? What is this demonstrating? Verse 22, look. Behold, pay attention, consider. Paul says, look, here's what this is pointing to. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God. In other words, in light of this illustration, in light of what God has done with Israel and the wild branch, what does this mean? It means that God is both kind and severe. God manifests both kindness and and severity. Don't miss the point. The kindness, the kindness first. What is this kindness? It's a goodness or a gracious attitude. Romans 2, 4, same word there, earlier in the same book. Turn, why don't you turn with me to Romans chapter 2? Because this is important. Romans chapter 2. Start in verse 1. Therefore, after he set up, this, he's just been discussing since about 118 all the way to 131, uh, our sin. And he picks up again, verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For, if, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You're guilty. Everyone's guilty. Don't pass judgment on other people because you're guilty too. Verse four, or do you think lightly of the riches of his what? His kindness, 
his kindness? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and the patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is what the kindness of God does. It leads you to repentance. The kindness, the goodness of God. Do you realize that he could have whacked all these branches off? He could have taken this, this wild tree and he could have just snapped it in half and thrown it to the side. It would have been just, it would have been fair. But in his kindness, listen, in his forbearance, in his patience, in his long suffering, he suffered long and he grafted. He gave a chance for wild olive trees to be grafted in. That's his kindness, his patience. Don't think lightly of that. Don't miss that. Don't pass over that. That is his goodness, his kindness, that he gives a chance. People say often, how can God send people to hell? The question is, how can he send anyone to heaven? He can only because of Jesus, only because of Christ. But if Christ would have never come, he didn't have to provide a savior. But in his kindness, in his goodness, he did. He didn't have to. He could have left you and me. Would have been fine. We would have come here, we would have learned about him, we would have worshiped him, we would have said hallelujah, praise God. We would have shut our Bibles and we would have been damned. But he didn't leave it that way. There's kindness of God. The forbearance of God is patience. His kindness is goodness. So many people miss this. So many people have a a misshaped view of God. You see this kindness and this goodness that ought to motivate you to what? To repentance. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? There's many things that motivate us to repentance. Fear, godly sorrow for sin, a realization that we stand condemned before God. But one of them, I'm I'm gonna say even a large one, huge one for me is I pray this often for people, Lord, in your kindness, draw them to repentance. God is kind. He's kind. This reminds me of one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, a series of verses. Titus 3, 3 through 7. Paul, in typical form, lifts off a, a variety of sins. He says, At one time you yourselves too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various passions and pleasures. You spent your life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. What's he saying? He's saying the same thing Paul says in Romans 1 through 3. And then what? But when the kindness... And love of God appeared. God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us. And it goes on the rest of those verses to explain how he saved us. By the washing and rebirth and renewal of his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. What a kind God we serve. What a patient God we serve. Psalm 119, 68 says, You are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Hundreds of lesser problems would be solved if we could just remember this. God is good, and what he does is good, period. God is a good God, a good God. In a salvific sense, this kindness, it's a generous motivator to repentance. It pushes us, it motivates us, it encourages us to repentance. And that's proved, it's demonstrated by the graft, isn't it? That's not divorced from the rest of God's character. Remember, we've been laboring to show the point that this isn't alone, that God isn't this and this and this. They're not individual petals on a flower to be plucked off and examined. God is a whole. He's united. He's in harmony with himself. That's why in the same breath, Paul says this. Behold then the kindness and the severity, the severity of God. 
How should we think about the severity of God? What does it mean that God is a God of severity? The word here is found only in the New Testament. Here once. It's the only place we can find it. And it means to cut off. And it makes good sense in light of our illustration, doesn't it? It means to cut off. God is a severe God. You're still in Romans 2, aren't you? We stopped in verse 4. It says this, Oh, do you think lightly of the, kindness, the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The kindness and the severity of God. To some, His kindness. To some, His severity. What about you? Are you holding back? Are you just waiting and watching? You're trying to hold out on God's kindness? Please don't think lightly of it. Please don't think lightly of His kindness. Behold the severity of God. Don't have a stubborn and unrepentant heart. I did for so long. I know what that's like to stubbornly push against God. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Do you see who this God is? He's so different from how culture depicts him. Some Santa Claus figure or some Zeus in the sky, angry and, and nothing else. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. And we see this all over scripture. Numbers 14.18, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgressions. That's what he does. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will by no means clear the guilty. God is both kind and severe. It's not one or the other. You will experience one or the other. God will manifest. He will show you kindness or he will show you severity. Can you imagine having one without the other? Can you imagine just taking this, this wild olive tree or this native olive tree and just snapping it and throwing it to the side? That's not God. God didn't do that. In his kindness, in his gracious, he provides a way. How? Through Jesus. Through Jesus, the very thing that the Jews missed. And the Gentiles now get a chance. They get to eat the crumbs by the table and we get to partake of now his fullness. Through Christ. Through Christ. That's what so many are counting on. It's just waiting, waiting for God to forgive their sins. But listen, you must turn to Christ. You must believe on Him first. John MacArthur, a, a tremendous teacher, writes this about this verse. All of God's attributes work in harmony. There is no conflict between His goodness and His love, His justice and His wrath. Those who accept His gracious offer of salvation experience His goodness or His kindness. And those who reject it, His severity. It's so black and white, isn't it? I mean, it's it's just not that complicated when we break it down. Much of the Bible is just so black and white between turning to God in repentance and faith or stubbornly refusing his offer of salvation. The rest of the verse says, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Now this is how it was manifest in your salvation. On those whom, according to Romans 2, 4, uh, they didn't think lightly of the riches of the kindness and of his tolerance and patience, but they turned towards him in repentance. Have you done that? 
Have you turned towards God? I have a friend, and I just, I can so remember it like it was yesterday. I didn't get saved until I was in college, until I was many of your guys' age, but I remember in study hall in middle school, sitting around a table in our library, I can picture it like it was yesterday. And for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, we were talking about God. And I asked him, I said, when are you going to, I don't remember how I put it, when are you going to become a Christian? When are you going to uh, go to church? When are you going to follow Christ? Something like that. And he said, you know, I think I'll do it when I get done with high school. Now, I think I'll do it when I get done with college. I've had some fun. I've given myself some time. No, I think I'll do it when I kind of wind down and get a steady job. And he just kept going. Now, I think I'll do it when I get married and say, you know what? He is married and settled down. And he hasn't turned to God yet. And I pray, I pray that he does. But don't wait Don't test God's patience. Turn to him now. Don't be like my friend. God save him too. Now, does it make sense how these work together? Think of the tree. God's not lopping off branches like I did, right? He's not coming up here with a a hacksaw and just going crazy. Um, God desires that men and women be saved. I want you, I want in my limited amount of words I want you to see clearly the picture of God's kindness and his severity. You have a chance to experience his kindness. If never before then at least tonight. It says this, provided you continue in his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off. So there's a contingency clause here isn't there? John 15, 2 says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it will be even more fruitful. What does God do with branches that don't bear fruit? He cuts them off. Okay? He cuts them off the tree. The vine that is Christ in John 15, 2, He trims them. He cuts them off. So there's a warning here. There's a warning here to not be one of these. To not be one of these. You can't just think, silly Jews, why would you do that? Why would you reject the Messiah? That's so silly. Paul warns against that. He says, instead of doing that, fear, lest you too be cut off also. There's a warning here that just as the Jews rejected Christ, so those who reject him too will be cut off. Makes no difference, Jew or Gentile. This isn't to say that genuine believers who've been born again in Christ can somehow become unconverted or unchristian or any of those things. But neither is it to lessen the seriousness of this warning. Okay? I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that once God saves a man, he keeps him, that none will be snatched out of his hand, and yet I don't want to downplay the seriousness of what he says. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, the rest of the Bible doesn't either. Not all who come to cross life will go to heaven. Not all who come to grace will go to heaven. Not all who come to your church will go to heaven. Why? Because only those who have turned to him in faith and repentance will go to heaven. Be careful lest you too are cut off. You're not cut off because you prayed a prayer to accept Jesus at six and then somehow got to college and fell away from him. No, you're cut off only that you've never believed. There's so much confusion regarding this at MSU right now. 
genuine believers will be genuine believers until the day they die, not because they have some magnificent amount of strength, but because the God who saves them keeps them. But if you see someone fall away, what is that an indicator of? 1 John 2 tells us, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. What does it mean? What does it mean? It means that, listen, some in, not in here, some who have come to Cross Life um, that we've prayed for, that we've talked to, they go out. They go out and they don't come back. Now, I'm not saying the cross life is somehow the magical key to salvation. What I'm saying is these people, and I have them in my mind right now, they go out and they turn their back on Christ. Why? Because they were never really of him. They never really knew him. But what about you? Do you know him? 1 Corinthians 15, 2 says this, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. There will be many who believe in vain. Not because uh, their belief isn't uh, good enough or strong enough somehow, but because it's not a real belief. It's not a genuine faith. There will be those who go out from us because they were not really of us. Let me read you this, Hebrews, 4, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confession, firm to the end. Does that verse scare you? If you're a genuine believer, I don't think it should. But I do think that you should see the warning in there. What's this say? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why do you think I stand up here and unashamedly talk about community groups? Because I think there's some magical elixir to make you more like Christ? No. But because I believe that you and I, myself not excluded from this, need people in our lives to exhort us every day to say, are you more like Christ? Are you following him? Have you been in the word? Have you been in prayer? How are you doing that we wouldn't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Behold the kindness and the severity of God. Verse 23 goes on, it says, and even they, this is talking about the Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying these can still be grafted in. These can still turn to him. They can still... the. The natural branches can still be grafted in, and not only can they, but they will be. God has a future for Israel. He has a future for the Jews. How does this apply to you and I? One, we ought to pray for our Jewish friends. We ought to witness to them that Christ is the Messiah. You should have a real heart for these people. God is not done with these people. Two, this should encourage you that God is a covenant-keeping God. That God doesn't just throw off or break covenants when he wants to. 
promised a land, a seed, and a blessing, and he will give it. He will fulfill it till the end. He will call them too to salvation. This is contrary to nature. I don't know if you realize this, but most of the time what happens in Israel is not a wild olive branch gets grafted into the native one, but a native branch gets taken and put in the wild tree. Why? Because wild trees don't produce much. So Paul says this is contrary to nature. God is able to do what he wants, and if he wants to graft the Jews back in, he will. But praise God he has made room for you and I. Praise God he's made room for you and I. Romans uh, 11, verses 25 through 32, talk about the mystery of Israel's salvation. Okay, verse 26 talks about Christ. In this language, it says the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. I don't have time to dive into all this tonight. Uh, But in your community groups, you'll cover this a little bit more. And then this, watch this. After all of Romans 9, 10, and 11, in fact, in fact, after Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to 11, Paul says this. He explodes into doxology. He explodes into praise. And he says this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of God or who has become his counselor? Who who has first given to him that it may be paid back to him again? The answer, no one, no one. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. And I, I pray that this is what's stirred up in your heart. That you see this and you go, the mercies of God, the goodness and the severity of God that he made room for me. And that you would explode in doxology, that you would explode in praise and you would say, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul doesn't stop there. After 11 chapters of explaining clearly the covenant-keeping God, his plan of redemption, man's sin, all these things, we see this. Therefore, Romans 12.1, therefore, what? In light of everything that we haven't even begun to hit on tonight. Therefore, in light of all these things, in light of who God is, in light of what he's done, in light of the, the salvation he's, he's given, in light of the salvation he's offered freely to every man, to every woman. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of service. What's the application tonight? What is the application? It's this. Take your body and throw it on the throne of God. Sacrifice yourself for the kingdom. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, what's the motivator here? Why would you want to do something crazy like this? You ever wonder that? Why would you, I hope people wonder this. Why would you want to give your life over to God? Why? I urge you, brothers, by what? The mercies of God. Paul has just spent time, ink, prayer, laboring to show you the mercies of God. And Paul says, what? Let this be a motivator. Let this be encouragement to you. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. 
It's reasonable. It's some of your versions say acceptable or reasonable. This only makes sense. This only makes sense. What, what else would you do? What else could we do? What else could we do when we see this, when we read this, when we begin to understand for the first time? I used to think this Israel, Gentile, Jewish, it's just like, why does he use this confusing language? Do you see the mercies of God? Do you see what he did with us and unbelieving, undeserving, terrible people? He took us and he grafted us in the blessing. The mercies of God. What does it make you do? What should it make you do? Take your body, throw it at Present your body as a living sacrifice. Turn to God. This only makes sense, doesn't it? That's one thing to say, I, I'm a Christian. That's another thing to see what it looks like to walk the walk. Man, and I'm in the trenches with you every day trying to figure this out, trying to throw myself at the, trying to present my body as a living sacrifice. But what if, what if however many of you are in here, what if we took this seriously? What if we threw ourselves as sacrifices to to God as the only acceptable, the only reasonable thing and we continued to, to lay our lives down, we continued to take our cross up daily and we went like wild men and women into the world as we followed Christ at Albertsons, at Walmart, at MSU, at NBC, everywhere. Living, walking, breathing little Christs. Sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable says this, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know what God's will is? Do this. Throw yourself at God. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Follow God. If you want to go do something, do it. You know, I tell people, I say, I don't know what the will of God is. I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if, are you following God? Are you in a solid church? Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you in fellowship? How's your relationship with God? Good. It's going well. You want to go there? Is there a church there? Go there. Do it. If there's not a church there, study. Start one. Follow God. Throw your life at Him. Present your life, your body as a living sacrifice. Don't be transformed. That's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy. There's just stuff coming in from every single angle you could ever want. Media everywhere asking us to be a robot, to be transformed. The world thinks it's so individual, doesn't it? You ever take an objective look? Everyone looks the exact same. They're listening to the same thing, watching the same stuff. So it's a world. It's so easy to be transformed, to follow the world, to be conformed to the world. But God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Be transformed. Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You wash it in the word. You get around men and women of like precious faith that want to follow God. You say, brother, call me out. Sister, is there sin in my life? Encourage me. Help me. Push me. Renew your mind, but that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I've gone on some rabbit trails. Let me bring it back in. I want, Andy and I want, our desire, our prayer for you is that you would be firmly rooted in the grace of God. 
That's our prayer. Almost every single cross life. Lord, edify the believers. Build up the believers in grace and in truth. Sanctify them. Make them look more like Christ. And those who come, because they're going to be here on a Thursday night, those who come who don't know you, make them to love you. Make them to follow you. In your kindness, lead them to repentance. Where are you at tonight? Reality is you're in one of those two camps. This or that, black or white. You're following Christ or you're not. Present your body in light of God's goodness and severity. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of service. H.A. Ironside said, the epistle to the Romans is undoubtedly the most scientific statement of the divine plan of the redemption of mankind that God has been pleased to give us. What's he saying? You can't read this. You can't look at this and not see the gospel. The gospel is saturated in Romans. So if you miss this, I know I'm not, I know I'm not the world's greatest teacher. I know I struggle sometimes. But if you miss this, it's not because I'm a bad teacher. It's because you're refusing this. If you turn away from God tonight, it is no fault of the text. So two options stand before you. Experience the kindness and the goodness of God. Find true joy in worshiping and following the Savior or face his severity. Be cut off. But I beg that you wouldn't. I beg that you wouldn't. You and I, if you're a believer, we serve a kind master, a good God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are a kind God, a good Savior. You've you've taken a wild tree, one that you just could have left to itself, one that you just could could have discarded. You could have broke off. You could have trimmed it down to nothing. But you took it and you cut off branches like me, a worthless, pitiful one. And you grafted it into the vine, Lord. Thank you. We praise you. We give you thanks. I pray that you do that tonight. God, I pray that you that you make us an army of saints, zealous, steadfast, enduring for you, that we'd be stirred up by your mercies, that we'd look at you and, and go, how can I do anything else but follow you? How is anything else reasonable or acceptable? Am I faced with any other option but to follow you? And do this for the sake of your name, for the praise of your glory, we ask in your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.